I was uh, already thinking about this might be good if I go ahead. You you never know. Things come to your mind. You never know uh, whether it's indigestion, uh, a dream. uh, You don't know what it might be. And you just kind of have to take the hope that it's the Holy Spirit that's, you know, uh, there with you in the moments. But as we've been singing this morning, it turned me, my mind back to my readings. And, and just, uh, I read through the Gospel of John regularly, on a regular basis. I'm preaching there. I just read, I just read through it because what tends to happen is all of it gets fragmented in your mind. You're preaching and you're in this chapter and you forget. Or your mind gets so focused there, it doesn't think about what's behind it and what's in front of it. And the whole message of John, which is that we might see Jesus, believe in his name, and be saved. That's the whole purpose of the book. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, that's what he is doing. And that's what his gospel is used for uh, throughout church history. It's a great evangelism tool to just read through the book of John. Read through it, cover to cover. So this week I was back towards the beginning and I was reading and I, I read this passage. You don't, you can flip there or not. It's in John chapter two. I preached through it. I mean, I, I studied a lot for it and then it just kind of jumped off the page at me. Uh, so, so to speak, he says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then it says, so the Jews, the leaders... Of the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? They're saying, who gives you the right to drive out these from our temple? And look at Jesus' response. He doesn't say some, you know, hammered statement here. Look what he says. He turns and says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And John's note on that response is all the world to me. But he wasn't talking about the temple they were talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What what scripture did they believe? The Old Testament. They believed the Old Testament. Well, what in the world in the Old Testament would have made them believe in Jesus when talking about the temple? 
They understood the whole point of the physical temple in Jerusalem was to point them to Jesus. For the first time in their lives, they understood why God went through great detail about the size, the shape, the dimensions, the colors, the material. It wasn't about a building. It was about Jesus. And for the first time in their lives, they understood the Scripture. It's not about a place, a geographical location. It's not about a city. It's not about a building. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You, you might say, well, okay, I'm not sure about that. John chapter 4, then when you keep reading, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that very thing. You're worried about whether your fathers worship on that mountain and whether the Jews worship over there. And I'm telling you there's a day coming when no one will worship on that mountain or in that temple down there. They'll worship in spirit and truth. They'll worship through me. This great push worried about when some new temple is going to be built, it's been built. It is Jesus Christ. And he is drawing all men to himself. Not to a location, a physical building, but to himself. When you, when you begin to see the Old Testament through the eyes, I think we make the mistake of reading the New Testament in light of the... We read the Old Testament... Uh, separately, and then we read the New Testament. I did it for years. And we try to make these correlations and such. The key to understanding the Old Testament is to look through the New Testament, back to it. Don't set Christ aside and read the Old Testament. You will miss it. Read the Old Testament with Jesus as your goggles. Everywhere you read, see Jesus. That's the point of the Old Testament. It will revolutionize your relationship with Jesus Christ. I guarantee you it will change you. You will read Exodus with newfound meaning. You say, well, they didn't see it that way. That's right, because they hadn't had Jesus yet. But from the point of Jesus forward, they saw it that way. I'm just encouraging you. When you pick up your Bible, don't go to your Bible so worried about all these secondary matters. When you read your Bible, read your Bible with the lens of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The whole, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. Don't be like a scribe and a Pharisee when you read your Old Testament. They read it, understood it, and missed the point completely. That's all I'm saying. When you read passages like John chapter 2, and you think, what are they even talking about back there? Reference over to the Old Testament, but look at the Old Testament through Him. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In other words, they might say, where is your temple? Why don't you Christians have a temple? We do. He's in the heavens. He's seated on the mercy seat. He is our temple. And we are His temple on this earth. What a beautiful picture. And that leads us in, believe it or not, to where we are today. Because you misunderstand John 17 without that perspective also. And last week we talked about the first two 
identifying points that Jesus gives in his prayer to the church. What will the church look like? It will be joyful, filled with my joy. And it will be holy. And we talked about holiness, and I told Amy over lunch, the only thing I wish would have happened was there would have been time to then go to the third point because I left you in a precarious position having told you holiness is not, the focus of this holiness Jesus is talking about is not your external behavior. But it's positional. It's who you are in Him. Okay? And, and I know some of you, I hope, went home and thought, yeah, preacher, now we've opened the... We've opened the worm can now. They're going everywhere. How then do I tell my children not to be drunks, fornicators, and the like? You know, you said we're holy. The third point is how. Because we will be identified, the church will be identified by the truth. See, those two points really go together. That's what I hated about it was I hit this point really hard and did, I think, a good job of saying what that point's about. But the fourth point, wasn't, we didn't have time for it. And the fourth point is truth. So I hope you didn't go, uh, I don't know, fornicate or something this weekend and then blame me for it. That's, that wasn't my intention. <laughs> that wasn't my intention at all. To set you free to sin is not the point here. But to help us all understand that we are positionally seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. That's who we are. You think about yourself that way? Because that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. You've been raised up and you're now seated with Him in the heavenly places. That's positionally, that's where we are. You're in the very presence of God in Christ. You have a standing You have a place. But then he follows that with truth in his prayer. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Little things to notice here. The truth. Not a truth. Not just truth. The truth. There is truth in the world. As bad as popular uh, philosophy wants to shove down our throats... Situational ethics and relativity, the back, the fact of the matter is there is truth and it is contained in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, which now has been distilled to our little peon brains in writing so we can have the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Philippians. We can have the mind of Christ and the mind of Christ is the Word of God. Okay? And we're to have this mind which was in Him, in us. And it comes through the truth. It comes through the Word of God. So the first thing to notice about truth is there is such a thing. There is truth. And we will be known for the truth. We're to be known by it and for it. The truth is His Word. Look what it says. Your Word is truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify them. The word sanctify Set them apart. Okay? Now, I said last week, we are holy in Christ. We're already seated with Him in the heavenly places. And now He's saying, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. I thought we were holy. We are. 
holy, positionally. But in real life time, as we walk and move and have our being, we need to be set apart by His Word, instructed by His Word, according to the truth. All right? You see that? There's, there's two, two parts, we might say, to holiness. There is the character of holiness, which is God's character that has been instilled into us through His Spirit by His Son, Jesus Christ. We are holy. We are sealed, as He says in Ephesians 1.13. Paul says, you have been sealed by the spirit of promise until the, in, in, until the redemption day comes. We're sealed. We cannot lose our position. We are safe. We are in Him. We are sealed with the Spirit of God. That's our position. And then progressive sanctification occurs throughout our lifetime by the study and the knowing and the grid of the Word of God, the truth of God. So positionally holy people sin. Because we don't understand the truth. Do you see that? We didn't lose our standing before God when we sinned. You go out of here and commit a sin, you don't get X'd out of the family and kicked out. You never lose that. You're sealed under the day of redemption. You cannot be lost again. Because you're holy in Him. But what we do often is we sin. That's the progressive part of this sanctification. So Jesus is covering both parts. He's saying, you're holy, like I'm holy. Now, respond and live that way in the truth. I want both. That's why legalism just won't cut it. Legalism just won't cut it. Why? Because it emphasizes the be ye holy, without emphasizing you are holy in Christ. Legalism tells you buck up and try harder. Work yourself into heaven. You can't. I can't. You can't. We will fail. But because we are safe in Him and sealed in Him and positionally seated with Him, we now live like Him through His Word. So the Word is the truth. Truth exists, the Word is the truth, and we are known by the truth. When they accuse us of being Bible worshipers, that's only halfway a slam. That's only a part, partial slam. It's ignorance on their part. We're not worshiping the Bible. We're worshiping the God of the Bible. And you can't know Him unless you know His Word. You can't really fully know Him. Without, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? If you think about your life, then it ought to look different, shouldn't it? The, things I, the time I spend reading the Word of God now becomes about knowing Him rather than knowing a fact or knowing a truth or knowing some rule. I'm wanting to know Him. I'm not studying the Bible for all those secondary things. I'm studying the Bible for Him. And, and we're not worshiping the Bible. We're worshiping Him. But with the caveat, you can't know Him unless you know the Bible. You can't really know Him. You can't have a relationship with Him, is what I'm saying. You can know about Him. I mean, science is even starting to wake up and get a clue these days. They're even saying, you know, this thing really is designed. The good scientists are now saying, evolution, you know, that's just, I ain't so sure about that. There's got to be something. 
that designed it. It doesn't happen by chance and circumstance. And so they got this great design theory. They know about a God out there, but they don't know enough to know Him relationally because they haven't accepted the Word of God. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. There's truth. It's found in the Word of God, and it identifies His people. It identifies His people. So when someone says to me, oh, I love Jesus, but you know, I just don't get into the Bible. A red flag goes up. Not because I'm a legalist and I think you've got to read so many verses a day to be a Christian, but because I know personally you can't say that's contradictory. To say I love Jesus and don't love the Word. To say I love Jesus but I don't like preaching. To say I love Jesus but I don't, you know, I don't evangelize. To say I love Jesus and I don't try to grow and nurture myself through His Word and feed myself spiritually through His Word. That, that is, that's, a, that's just a, contradic- it's just a contradiction of truth. You cannot love Jesus and hate His Word. And His Word sanctifies us. It sets us apart. Jesus prayed for that. So He wanted us to have His joy. He wanted here, secondly, that we would, that we would be holy as He is holy. Third, that we would be sanctified, set apart by His truth, known by His truth. Fourth, in the prayer, He says that we will be identified, the church will be identified by the mission that we are on. Look at verses 18 through 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, now I'm sending them into the world. We're on a mission. We're to be identified by the mission. What is the mission? We were talking about this Friday morning in a Bible study. What is the mission? Well, the short, the Cliff Notes version of the mission is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As you're going, make disciples. The command is to make disciples of all ethnic groups around the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I'm with you to the end of the age. So I want to talk about that mission in just a moment. Our mission is to make disciples. We have the same mission he had in his life. Make disciples. That's what Jesus' mission was before he entered the, the death of the cross was to make disciples. He gave his life to it. Whatever other pursuits you're giving your life to should be supporting the mission of making disciples. How? In your workplace... Instead of punching the clock to count the hours to go home in the day, how can I now do this job, which I've been given by God in a tough economy, by the way. We ought to be thanking God for the jobs we have. How now can I disciple people in my job? How can I be the father God has called me to be, discipling my wife and my children, mothers, encouraging my husband and sharpening him, discipling him as iron sharpens iron, and raising these little ones to be edified and loved. The whole mindset of the Christian, what identifies the Christian, is the mindset of mission. He didn't save us to sit on the sideline. We're in the game. We're here. You've been called to something great. It's the same mission Jesus had. So, In my business, the way I do business, 
should reflect the principles of God's Word. The way I treat my employees or the way I respect my employer should preach God's Word. The way I go about my daily tasks, putting my hand to the plow and making a living for my family, should look different than the lost guy next to me. Everything about my life is in this mission now. You don't quit your job to go on missions for Jesus. You do the mission of Jesus at your job. Some of you just went. Because, see, people preach about missions. I'm guilty of it. And it sounds like you're supposed to quit your job and go overseas. And what I'm telling you is, 99.9% of y'all aren't going to go anywhere, no matter how hard I try. But what you will do, because of guys, boneheaded guys like me, is you'll sit and feel guilty the rest of your life that you didn't go over there. And you'll come to the end of your days and you'll feel like you've done nothing because all you did was work at UPS or Classic Custom or Donahoe School. And you'll think, what a waste. I wasted my whole life. I didn't do anything for God. And that's a shame on me and it causes shame on you. And so what I'm telling you today is when you hit the floor tomorrow in Ohatchee at the school, you're on a mission. You're on a mission when you hit the band room in Donahoe, when you're working on teeth, when you're checking eyes. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Jesus has said, I'm sending them like you sent me. So whatever you eat or whatever you drink or whatever you find to do, do it all to the glory of God. Now you understand what Paul might be talking about. When I think, when Paul, when I think about Paul's life, he spent a lot of time making tents. And not one minute of that making tent time was wasted. Maybe some of it. He's human. But the majority of it was not wasted, right? Because he was discipling Aquila and Priscilla, who then reached out to Apollos, who then became a great pastor in the church. And that happened making tents. And it can happen from macroelectric. And it can happen from any place. On the globe, because we're not called to some centralized location where then we go out and live like vagabonds and try to reach some people for Jesus. We live in our neighborhoods. Some of you stay at home and say, well, I'm off the hook. I don't go to work. I stay at home. No, you're not off the hook. Your job's harder than the rest of ours. You got it 24-7 with your children and your thoughts become, how do I raise these children to be disciples of Christ? How do I get that done? How do I impact Joanne next door? Right? I'm on a mission. I got a mission field in Pebble Creek, in in wherever you live, in Legacy Hills. I've got a mission field right here, and it's ripe to the harvest. Jesus said you'll be known for the mission, the mission of making disciples. Sometimes I think we're so wrapped up in the ethnic groups that are somewhere else that we miss our ethnic group. Sometimes we're thinking about the other parts of the world when we need to be thinking about Jerusalem. And we let ourselves off the hook. That's all I'm saying. I do it. Well, missions, missions is for that small sliver of really brave people that go out and give it all. No, missions is for 100%. 
is for all of us. And we're known for our joy on, while we're on the mission. See how these things feed back to each other. Our holiness, our positional nature. We know who we are. We're the children of the King. We're sanctified and set apart because we're in His Word and it's the truth for us. And now we're out doing the mission, making disciples. It all, all this prayer, look how it unifies, how it, how it flows. You see here a peek into the majestic mind of Christ. He's praying these things for the church. Now, fifth, the fifth identifier in the prayer is unity. And I'm going to look at verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them. And you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may, may become uh, perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is not Jesus' wishful thinking. He's not saying, boy, I hope this gets done. It sure would be nice if we had a unified body. He's saying, authoritatively, my people will be one. Just like I'm in you, Father, and you're in me, so they're in me, and so therefore you're in them, and we're all one. This is not, you know, uh, like the match and wave it and all sing a song of solidarity. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not some milk toast, watered down doctrine that we can all sign on to and go stand at the court square. Because the reality is there are some secondary issues which divide me on a Sunday morning like this from some of my other brothers in worship. In this worship setting. And that's okay. What Jesus is talking about unity over, look at the focus of the unity. The focus of the unity is the, under, is the trinity. Do you see it? He doesn't just say make them one so all the world might be one and we're at peace. But he says like we are one so they will be one and they will be one through us. What bonds me to those brothers who are worshiping at Faith Presbyterian is not that we have different views on baptism, because we do, but it's Christ. It's the gospel. It's the orthodox belief of the Trinity. That's what joins me to them and them to me. In other words, the secondary things, though, as important as they may be to our expression locally as we're gathered here, never should divide us universally. And they won't divide us universally. Because Jesus has promised it, hasn't he? Not only did he pray it in John 17, but he said it in John chapter 10. I'm the shepherd. And I've come to gather the sheep into one sheepfold so that there's one shepherd. He's accomplishing this. 
It is being done. Now, the question then comes in to how am I displaying the unity personally in my family that exists already among the brothers and sisters that I have in Christ? How am I going about it? To reach across man-made barriers and have fellowship over the gospel. How am I accomplishing that? I can't answer that question for you. Some of you are doing much better than me. But I can tell you, it starts with a true understanding of the gospel. And who Jesus is and who the Trinity is. Then, based on that, which comes from His Word, we hold that out and it's like a magnet. People are drawn to it. Or they're repelled from it. And so when people are repelled from it, because that's this point, people get all excited when people are coming to it. I understand. And we get it, and I get excited. But the problem comes in with that first time that somebody comes close and sees it and then that, and then is repelled. That's the dangerous moment in my mind. Because what do I want to do? What do you want to do? Change the message. Soften the blow. Rearrange the gospel a little. Massage it so they'll come back. What will happen when we do that is we will then attract lost people to a false gospel and we will repel true believers. And we'll have buildings full of lost people going to hell. And we'll be excited about the number we have. Or the lack thereof. Because some people are excited they haven't got anybody. Both are sinful. Both attitudes are sinful. You see the difference? When we, when, it's not when everybody's with us. It's when that first person goes against me. That's when I step back and say, oh, well, he didn't like that part of the gospel, so let's change it a little. Let's tweak it. Let's rearrange it. Let's be soft. And then that guy comes back. The problem is when he comes back, 14 more leave. Because they're not looking for a false gospel. They're looking for the real gospel. And the spirit inside them bears witness. That's not it. And so I like to think of it as magnets. The magnet is Christ. The magnet is the gospel. The truth of the gospel. And he is drawing. He is accomplishing what he said he would do. He's drawing men to himself in unity. And he is repelling thousands who say, I don't want that. And they call it intolerance. They call it intolerance. They call it, you know, stubbornness. They call it whatever. They got lots of terms for it. It's not intolerant to in love tell somebody they're about to die. That's not intolerant. I might be wrong, but I'm not intolerant. Don't let somebody, when you hold out the true gospel, tell you you're intolerant. Say, no, no, no. I may be foolish. You call me crazy. You can call me a lot of things. Intolerance not one of them. It just that label doesn't fit. Because if I knew you were about to die and I did everything within my power to stop you from dying, would you want me to do that? Or would you rather me stand back and say, well, he might think I'm intolerant. I just won't say anything. No, he wants you to get between him and the bullet. Doesn't matter. They may call us ludicrous. They may call us foolish. They may call us 
A lot of things, but intolerance is not the trademark of Christianity. We are not intolerant. Jesus prayed that we would have his joy, that we would then be holy like he is holy, that we would have sanctifying work of the Spirit on the Word in our life, that we would realize we are on a mission and that would unify us. The mission is the spreading of the gospel that would unify us. And finally, he identifies his church by love. He identifies his people by love. He gets to verse 26 in his prayer. And he says, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The characteristic of God's church is godly love. Not worldly love. Not romanticism. But agape. We were talking with friends this weekend about adoption. And they were just asking questions about what are some of the things you wish you'd have known? What are some things you've learned? The biggest thing I've learned is that the love that I have for my children, my natural born children, as great as it is, it's not really godly. It, it kind of is, it kind of isn't. I love myself. So that thing I don't really like about Hannah Grace, but it's like her mama. I say, I love her mama, so I love her. That's quirky. I wish she didn't do it, but, you know, I love her. When I see Noah running off at the trap for 15, 20 minutes, I say, that's a lot like me. That's kind of not like God's love, is it? What we experience and what others who have adopted experience is laying in the bed next to Amy one night and she says, do you love Lily? Yeah. No, 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 no. I, I know we're supposed to love her. Do you love her? I'm pretty simple. I said I love her. Just that didn't hit it. What? What am I supposed to say to tell her I love her? Yeah, I love Lily. What are you getting at? I don't know. I just struggle to love her. She doesn't smell like me. She doesn't look like me. She doesn't act like me. She doesn't have my expressions. She doesn't have your expressions. When I look at her, she looks totally different than me. And I'm struggling. And it was in that moment it kind of clicked with me. That's a God-like love. That's it. We don't look like God, really. We don't act like God. We don't smell like God. We don't have that character like God. And yet he looks at us and says, I love them. They're mine. And then he conforms us into the image of his son. And that has a parallel in adoption, too, because the longer Lily's in our family, the more she acts like a weathers, for good or bad. I don't need the judgment call, okay? You see, you see what I'm saying? You never, maybe you've never been through this, but you see what it's a physical example to show you that's the kind of love Jesus is praying for, that they'll love the way you love me and the way I love them. They'll love others 
And the world will know them by that kind of love. In this conversation, we kept going through. I said, you know, Egypt doesn't allow adoption. All these places don't allow adoption. I said, I know they're not Christian cultures. They don't have adoption because adoption is a Christian principle. They don't know how you can take somebody that's not yours and make them yours and love them enough to lay your life down on their behalf. They don't understand it because that's not a natural thing. That's a God-like thing. And Christianity is the root and the base of the, of the society we live in. And so adoption is a natural thing here. It just happens. It's a good thing. We encourage it. Because it's like Him. And so what am I saying? You may never adopt anybody into your family physically, but is there a student at JSU who's far flung from their family that you can take in as your own? Is there a neighbor next door who's a widow that you can say, she's not my grandma and she's not my mom, I'm going to love her like she is? Is there anyone in your life that you're loving like God loves you? Not because you love yourself, but because... You want to display Him. That's what Jesus prayed for. He said, you'll be known for it. And I want us to be known for it. I want to be known that way. And I'm, I'm in the way of application here just going to say, that's what our church vision is. I know it was very simple when we rolled it out. And some of you thought, why would you even have that thing? Because I don't get it. That's it. This is it. What we're challenging the church at Grace Fellowship to be is otherworldly in the world. To reach across ethnic barriers, denominational barriers, all the man-made barriers, and love our brothers and sisters like God loves us. That's the call. That's, That's what I want to be, and I'm not enough like that. And so I'm asking you to help me, and I hope I can be a help to you. And as we go forward... We will be a magnet by His grace. We will draw and we will repel. And this isn't a statement of get out of the church or whatever, but the reality is there are those who may even be in here. I hope not, but there may be those in here who say, that's not what I'm about. And there may be those that come and visit and say, that gospel's not what I care about. But if they're running from the gospel and not from our idiosyncrasies, Let it be. Don't change the message to keep them. Keep the message by the grace of God and draw, and He will draw to Himself those that are His. Let's pray together. Father, as we've looked over this prayer, we are convicted that You are a great Father and we are pitiful. We, We in our flesh are nothing. We're... We're undone, but by your grace, by your good news, by your gospel, by your Son, we have position and standing. And so, Lord, would you work these things into us by your Spirit? Would you make us uh, to look through your eyes, to feel with your heart, and to be your hands and feet? We love you and praise you. It is in your great name we pray, Christ. Amen. Thank you for being with us. We're moving into the passion of Christ here. Right.